Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Matt Ives, who's a senior research associate in complex systems economic modeling at the University of Oxford, which for now is going to be our last interview in this climate change miniseries that we've been doing. So I was actually Matt's research assistant uh, not that long ago, and through this I learned a tremendous amount about climate change, which I'm now really excited to be sharing with you. In particular, we talk about this really incredible decline in costs that lots of renewable technologies have been seeing, but in particular solar power, which has fallen over three orders of magnitudes in the last 50 years. We ask why this is, the role of these so-called experience curves, and the implications that this has for fighting climate change, in particular when we start including this phenomenon in our mainstream models. We also touch on a bunch of other things, including financial disclosure of climate risks, a very brief introduction in complexity economics, and believe it or not, how systems modeling got Matt Ives to actually start swimming with bull sharks. So this was our first in-person interview in over a year, and we were super excited to get to talk to a guest in real life. However, tragically, we only realized after the recording that our mic for Matt was in fact not working. So we've had to use uh, the backup audio from one of our laptops instead. This means that the audio quality in this episode is gonna be a bit rough and you can hear some background noise throughout. However, hopefully this doesn't detract at all from all the interesting things that Matt says. So without any further ado, here's the episode. Uh, Matthew Ives, I'm a research scientist at Oxford, so I spend my time mostly in front of computers, uh, reading manuscripts, writing manuscripts, and coding and managing timesheets and budgets. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like a real blast. And you, <laughs> <laughs> you also do work on climate change, right? Which is why we have you here today. And specifically, you use your background in complexity economics to answer some of these questions. Can you briefly explain what that kind of background is and why it relates to climate change? Yeah, in a previous job, I was uh, um, tagging bull sharks in Sydney Harbour. So, um, yeah, describing my job like that doesn't sound like a great hoot, but... I am very passionate about climate change and, and the research I do, which uh, keeps me going. Uh, what does complexity economics tell us about that? Um, well, complexity economics is, is a branch of economics. It's, it would fit in the class of heterodox economics. So you've got your orthodox, which is also called neoclassical economics, uh, which is what most people are taught when they do an undergrad. I unfortunately did an honours year in which only 12 of the 300 people um, stayed on uh, and they spent that year telling us how everything we were taught for the first three years was completely wrong, um, whereas everyone else went off to run the country, basically. So, and there's many different branches of heterodox economics and that's part of the reason why um, the one paradigm is dominated so much is, is the Judean people's front won't talk to the people's front of Judea and so the Romans win. Uh, but complexity economics, I like it. Um, I, I haven't actually done that all my career. Um, I have been doing complex systems modelling uh, in fisheries uh, in the past. I've worked as a programmer uh, for a number of years and uh, did a PhD in uh, complex systems modelling. Uh, I've only started doing complexity economics when I've come to, to Oxford. And in terms of what it does and what, what it's useful to climate change, it looks at the economy from a different perspective. We don't uh, rely on some of the big assumptions that are problematic for neoclassical economics, like 
uh, that we are always in some sort of equilibrium state. Um, we spend most of our time looking at the data and trying to find relationships in the data. Um, we also tend to use methodologies that aren't used as much by uh, neoclassical economics. Uh, one example is graph theory or network theory. So looking how um, understanding network behaviour can give you an idea of what's happening in the economy. Uh, the production system is an example of a network, so the supply chains between all the companies uh, is an example of something you could look at using network theory. Potentially cruel question. Can you say something about what is a complex system, briefly? Well, we pretty much everything is a complex system, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. There's very few systems that are not um, complex. So, for instance, the economy is a complex system. Uh, your household is a complex system. There's um, complexity in the way that wind moves through your house. There's complexity in how energy is provided to your house. There's complexity in the relationships you have. <laughs> In terms of a branch of knowledge, it's you're looking at the dynamics of the system and how um, a system changes through time based on those dynamics. Um, one example of something that's not studied m much in um, neoclassical economics is the feedback dynamic. Uh, one classic example would be um, the more you deploy certain technologies like computer chips, the cheaper they get, the cheaper they get, more people demand them. The more you sell, the cheaper they get, and you've got that positive feedback dynamic, which leads to uh, exponential growth. No, awesome. And I'm sure we'll delve into those experience curves in a bit. But when you're talking about where all these complex systems are, uh, climate change clearly seems to be really complex as well. You've got the economy, you've got the environment, you've got ways that they interact, and as you mentioned, loads of feedback loops. And one thing that you emphasise in a recent article with some co-authors is this idea of sensitive intervention points. Can you explain what exactly that is and why it's really important when we think about low-carbon solutions? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to do with the, the pace of change required in order to meet the Paris goals to, to keep warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, we're already above one, so... Uh, and we haven't made much of a dent in our emissions, uh, so we need to really accelerate that change. Um, those positive feedback dynamics are very important then, and they exist in our socioeconomic system, and we can exploit those in order to decarbonise more rapidly. It's also a cost-effective way of doing it because you can get more bang for your buck. If mm. you are able to get these dynamics working, you can get outsized results you can get runaway change so thinking these dynamics through you mentioned two things in this article kicks and shifts can you briefly explain to listeners what those two terms mean um, so an example of a kick would be something like um, giving subsidies to clean energy technologies so that they're on price parity with the alternative fossil fuel technologies um, and by allowing private investment to um, take advantage of that, they invest more in it, the costs come down, um, you deploy, people demand more, do you deploy more, the costs come down to some point where you don't actually need to have those subsidies anymore and the costs keep declining and so you get a positive benefit out of that investment. That, that's an example of a kick, bringing about a runaway change. A shift would be something like where you're actually shifting the, the, the system itself 
um, the internet would have been a, a shift, a, yeah. a major change to the system that has allowed new dynamics to appear like viral videos. Uh, another one could be a law like the Climate Change Act, which has brought about some pretty significant changes. That That's a, a change to the system as a whole. Yeah, yeah. The, the system is now shifted into a new dynamic rather than you making use of the dynamics that are already there. Yeah, so just trying to see if I understand this correctly with kicks and stuff. There, the importance is that there's some sort of threshold point where, you know, in the case of government subsidies, you get renewables up to some point and then some other dynamic in this case private investment takes over and you unlock this as you said kind of feedback mechanism or something but you need to get a kick to get to that point in the first place that's a good example of the dynamic and it, it, a similar idea and possibly where we got this idea from is you have those tipping points in the climate system that you might have heard about and been scared by the mm. idea that so for instance the albedo effect that the more it warms, the less ice you have, the less reflection of sunlight, the more it warms. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've got that positive feedback in the climate system. Um, we're looking at similar elements. And, and so when that albedo effect gets to a certain tipping point, it's generating enough warming to keep um, reducing the amount of ice and, and you, you get a positive feedback. Yeah, one thing I'm wondering is whether all positive feedback loops are kind of runaway in the kind of worrying sense i'm thinking of you know holding a mic up to a speaker if it's close enough you do get this feedback, feedback. but if it's far away it's still a positive feedback loop but nothing bad happens or it's not run away yeah no, no, that's a really good question and it's relevant for the idea of uh, do you get an outsized effect so you could actually expend right. more energy getting it to that tipping point than you get out of the system so yes that is definitely the case okay let's talk about renewables and solar specifically can you say something about exactly how much cheaper solar is now compared to a decade ago or two decades ago? And also how that stacks up, how that compares with other sources of power? Yeah, so the, the numbers are pretty staggering. Uh, when they first started using solar panels and they put them up in space, mm. um, that was a niche market, uh, to, to say the least. Um, the governments uh, were in a space race, uh, Russia and the US, so they had oodles of money to spend on this political battle. If you had to put solar panels on your roof when they first started, it would have cost you about a million dollars to put solar panels on your roof. The costs have come down from that point around about 5,000 fold. Uh, so in the last decade, it's been going down for about, the cost could be declining about 10% per year. Um, which begs the question why people are buying them now. If it's been so consistent, <laughs> and it has for decades, wouldn't you wait just a couple of extra years to Wouldn't buy? Wouldn't supply? Maybe not always. <laughs> uh, we have not seen any evidence that it won't. But, but, but the key point is that it's based on cumulative deployment, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, yeah, without yeah. rights law. So at some point, you've got half of the world's energy system supplied by solar. You can only double that one more time. There'll be certain decommissioning of old stock, but there's a natural end to how much you can deploy. No, but we do need early adopters. We do need, yeah. I mean, they're the, the heroes of this story because there's some people, there's one up the road here, she uh, put solar panels on her roof 20 years ago. And God yeah. bless her for doing wow. that because we needed people doing that. And like EVs too, we need, mm. we need them to be sexy so people pay more for them. Say something about electric vehicles and the battery technology because it sounds like a very similar story there as well with costs going massively down. Very similar, very important story too because batteries are going to play a huge role in uh, us getting more renewables onto the grid. And batteries are coming down um, at 
quite a rapid rate, more than solar, so more than that 12%. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. And so, yeah, your chances are we're going to have very cheap batteries and we're going to be using them a lot. You're probably going to have your EV mostly charged because there's going to be so many mm. charging places everywhere. Your battery is also going to be connected to the grid. It's going to be smart so that you can sell storage capacity to the grid. Um, it's a brave new world we're heading into. Yeah, and just to give like a sense of scale, I guess, I remember seeing a tweet from Max Rosa a couple of days ago that the newest battery that a Tesla now uses, like to get a battery of that kind of performance back in the 1990s would have cost half a million dollars. And today is 13, 14,000. Like it's just an insane drop in price. So the UK government has done their own numbers and they basically think EVs will be not only cheaper to own, they're already close to that already Mm. um, because it's cheaper to drive them, but also cheaper to buy within um, five years. Um, and you can imagine that's your tipping point right there. Um, it's artificial at the moment because we're subsidising them, um, but we're going to get there fairly soon. Uh, so within 15 years, I wouldn't be surprised if they dominated <coughs> as the mode of transport for small vehicles. Okay, so there's a bit of a question here, right, where batteries become crazy cheap or far cheaper than they used to be. So as solar, you get these kind of exponential declines in in cost and the other example this makes me think of is computer chips which you mentioned as well but other technologies even kind of sources of power aren't becoming cheaper in comparable ways like fossil fuel isn't much cheaper today than it is 30 years ago or much longer so what's the question well you've asked me this question before and i didn't answer it (laughs) okay (laughs) okay explain uh yeah so um Shockingly, um, uh, most materials out there haven't changed their costs, uh, inflation adjusted through time. We we don't really understand why, I don't think. Um, But one one potential answer is, with fossil fuels in particular, is you have to go further and it's harder to get more out of the ground. You, you, You take it from the easiest places you you get better exploring, you get better extracting, your costs come down, but because you have to go further and to more remote places to pull it up, it's harder to pull up, it costs more. So that is one dynamic that could be explained how the costs yeah. haven't changed that much. We haven't also, we, we've got a cartel selling oil, so we haven't also seen what the costs are definitely going to be. The oil companies don't really make mm. that um, uh, very evident, but we would expect you know, it to be pretty low, much lower than it is, around $8 per barrel when it's, it sells about 80 um, But even then, um, renewables will get cheaper. There'll be certain places in the world where, um, like Saudi Arabia and Australia with coal, yeah. it might be cheaper for some time now. But I mean, is there some worry that one reason fossil fuels haven't become much cheaper is just because they haven't faced much competition until now-ish? And you might expect there to be a kind of rush towards actually driving yeah, down costs. Yeah, definitely the case. But I, 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 I wouldn't. I would definitely expect the fossil fuel industry to fight back. And at the moment, they've been doing it through political interference and so forth um, to maintain their their high costs. But um, you know, with policies changing, court rulings um, most mm. recently, um, Shell being told to reduce their emissions by forty percent by twenty thirty. 
by a court, a Dutch court. That's pretty huge. Um, the other thing is if the world's, if these trends continue with renewables, the world's going to demand less. So if you're Russia and you're saying, we don't care, climate change is good for us, our GDP goes up when it gets warmer, so we're going to go yeah. help with it. You're not going to be able to sell it to anyone. Yeah. Who are you going to sell it to? Yeah. You've got all these assets that are built in order to sell your product to the world, all these pipelines, that you're not piping any yeah. gas or I guess it's not in. strict competition, right? And you're, you've got that on your bank books. So mm. even if you do have a domestic market still, you're not going to be able to pay for the debt on these these other assets that you're not actually working and using. So things are looking pretty dire for the fossil fuel industry, I think. Yeah. Back to the econ. Can you explain this thing called rights law and this idea of learning by doing experience curves? Sure. Um, Theodore Paul Wright uh, came back to um, help uh, in the production of planes and noticed this trend in costs and there's this old graphic that he has of the, the costs at a particular factory uh, declining with cumulative production. So um, yeah, that's how much production on top of what production you've already built. So um, um, that's Wright's law and, and it's also come by other names of experience curves and learning by doing and we don't really understand how it works, what are the main characteristics of technologies that make them have these experience curves, but there's certainly features that they all have that have good experience curves. It's um, modularity, um, so computer chips are a good example, solar is a good example. Um, you can have a solar panel that's the size that fits your watch, or you can produce gigawatts of power and everything in between. Mm. There's nothing equivalent for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and uh, mass appeal and solar does have that and mass production if you can mass produce then you get economies of scale and that's all yeah, part yeah. of that learning by doing process yeah. yeah well we talked a bunch about like fossil fuels here but like another comparison I guess would be nuclear power and maybe like drawing a comparison there where these things because they are just like huge projects you just can't have them on the kind of like same scale and every time they seem to be kind of unique or like every kind of power plant there's less standardization there so there's less chance for learning as well I don't know if there's anything like you want to pick up on there um, one thing is that the nuclear industry is now trying to push for these small modular reactors as a way of saying, well, we can get around mm. that by mass producing small modular reactors. Um, that's at least a couple of decades away, I would say, before they can actually produce enough to be getting these economies of scale. Uh, and people have got to buy them too, um, and they're not going to be cheap. Um, and you're up against something that's already got a head start in renewables. So um, I, I was looking into a recent nuclear power station that was built in the US or they tried to build it in the US and South Carolina. Mm. It's eight years, ten years old now and they still have just got a hole in the ground. It's cost them something like nine billion. Um, so there's a lot of risk getting slapped over that one. Um, so I'm not sure they'll try too many. I think Bill Gates has come out and said he's going to build something. But then you've got the problems with uh, safety concerns and um, nuclear proliferation because some of these uh, long-lasting salt reactors mm. um, require you to um, have higher grade nuclear uranium and so forth. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's closer to weapons grade kind of nuclear. So. One thing I want to ask as well, as you mentioned that we're not entirely sure what's going on here. It's a bit of an empirical relationship. The theory isn't completely clear. How do we know that it's really the experience that's causing the the cheaper prices as opposed to just like prices going down and therefore we use more? 
Yeah, so there was, there was a natural experiment uh, that some colleagues at the INET, uh, Francois Lafond and, and Jane uh, Doan Farmer, looking at this natural experiment of World War Two, where you um, had the government have a reason mm. to deploy a whole lot of technologies, even just blankets. Um, and so that's a natural push to the system rather than being a demand pull. And they did the calculations on those technologies that were um, invested in during World War Two, and found that there's there's pretty much a 50-50 relationship between demand pull and investment push in terms of what you can actually make happen by just going out there and deploying it for a certain reason. Hmm. And you know, mitigating climate change is a very good reason to do exactly that. Can, can you talk a bit more about that? So this whole conversation about like renewables and prices falling is clearly like really optimistic, but what is the consequence that you would want policymakers to understand from this? So we have this relationship, it's great, prices are going down. Does that mean we can just kind of chill and wait for the market to kind of do its thing? Or what would policymakers have to do now uh, because of this? The obvious solution would be to continue doing that, to continue to support these um, technologies that seem to be um, doing really well and have good experience curves. So those technologies will change too. So um, whenever you get a new version of a technology, Mm. um, you basically have a new technology. Um, So at some point when you develop these experience curves, you have to have some sort of make a decision on how you aggregate these technologies. So solar has got many different variants and there's new ones on the horizon, organic solar cells, perovskites. We put them all in the same basket. So the the government should continue to support those that Mm. look like they show a lot of promise like perovskites and tandem cells do and, and organic solar is another thing they can do. So looking at those next generation versions and helping to support those uh, coming through to the point where these technologies do become so cheap that that they can stand on their own two legs and you don't have to support them so much anymore. But in our modelling, in order to get the maximum benefit out of this, you actually have to maintain our current deployment level. Uh, And it's exponential growth that's happening. So you have to um, keep supporting them um, until the market does it for you and globally. So countries all around the world, more than area. Yeah, I find this like a really interesting comment and it really makes me think about what is the role of government like in all of this? Because especially kind of following the climate change debate, especially in economic circles, there used to be like such a focus on like carbon tax and kind of these market solutions, whereas the picture you're describing here with kind of state subsidies, picking technologies and more investment there, how big a difference are like these two narratives? And does that really follow, I guess, like from the mainstream neoclassical world you were describing before versus this complexity thing? Quite possibly, because um, what the neoclassical models are good at is Mm. showing you what happens when you've got a static environment and you change something like a carbon tax, how the system might react to that carbon tax. So it's a marginal change. But what we're talking about here is a transformational change, a non-marginal change to the system. And you kind of need to look at the the problem a bit differently and and through different lenses. yeah, so a carbon tax, it's not mutually exclusive. A carbon tax is definitely going to help. Mm. And if you stick it in a model, it's going to tell you it's going to do uh, wonders, provided you can get the carbon tax up high enough. Yeah. Um, and you can 
be selective on where you put that carbon tax and you actually get more bang for your buck if you just put it on fossil fuels or yeah, energy yeah. generation. Um, but you wouldn't have got what happened with offshore wind in the UK with a carbon tax. I just don't see it happening. We had a carbon price that was higher than mm. the EU and it was actually seen by government as a bad idea. They were trying to stop themselves from doing it. Yeah, yeah. They had an obligation to the EU and so they went ahead. Uh, so there is something to be said about strategic investment and particularly in those technologies that show these good experience curves um, because then you get these runaway benefits, these exponential decreases in costs mm. with deployment. Okay, so we have these declining costs in renewables, solar and wind specifically. We're talking about it being very important now to continue to deploy them and to scale up uh, solar wind as a fraction of the the pie, initially through subsidies and more strategic investment, hopefully to reach a point where it's paying for itself. There is a worry though, maybe that once you reach a certain scale, you've got to worry about the practical problems of that are specific to solar and wind. And then a fairly major one to mention is this so-called intermittency problem. And the sun only occasionally shines, it turns out. And it's, there's no reason to expect demand for energy to line up with how sunny it is. Is that worth worrying about? And what are the solutions? Uh, definitely, and, and good question. Uh, because it's not just wind and solar that we look at. It's those other technologies that we talked about, like batteries, uh, for storage in order to deal with these intermittency problems. Another key one is electrolyzers, which is what allows you to produce hydrogen, uh, which you can use as a source of fuel for uh, long-term storage, so seasonal storage, when you have years that are not as windy as other years. And you've got to meet peak, and peak is in winter, and the sun is not necessarily mm. um, shining in this country in summer, let alone in winter. So you've, you've got to be able to have enough storage on hand to be able to meet those um, peak periods. Uh, and in some years, you're going to produce less because um, you didn't have as windy a year. So you have to um, account for those, um, those gaps in the, the production of energy and, and store it. And so and electrolyzers are coming down in price, fortunately, at a rapid rate. Um, they're doing spectacular things in China, uh, but I think it's low labour costs is one of the reasons. But mm. um, yeah. Mm. I guess a related point is that presumably renewables, and again, solar and wind specifically, are being deployed right now in the places where it's most profitable to deploy them, which is the places where it's windiest and sunniest. And if the question is one about deploying these things at scale, and in lots of different parts of the world, rather than just these especially sunny or windy parts, maybe you need to start worrying about these kind of regional differences. And I guess the question there is whether the kind of measures of just costs for installing these things from right now are an especially good indicator of how expensive they're going to be to deploy much more widely, and maybe we're being misled there. So a similar problem to what fossil fuels, uh, that feedback dynamic that it's harder to get um, yeah. more energy mm. out of the system. Uh, that would be, that is definitely going to be a, a problem down the track, but uh, at the moment it's not, um, in part because we're not actually doing that. 
We are doing it in individual countries. So the UK is putting their wind farms where they'll get the most um, energy out of it. But the world is not doing uh, such a good job. Um, there's plenty of places in the world that have huge wind uh, resources that probably won't take advantage of them for quite some time. Russia being a, a good example. Um, Canada. Uh, Australia has ridiculous amounts of solar potential. I think they've got something like 100,000 watts, megawatts per person. And the global average is like 1,000. Um, so you could pretty much power the planet from Australia uh, if you wanted to, uh, and uh, we're not taking advantage of that. We've also got cheap coal and, uh, unfortunately, some pretty powerful lobby groups that keep the governments sticking with coal. But solar is growing rapidly there too, just from community efforts. But it will, uh, it will get to a point, um, but it's not anywhere close to what we need to actually power the world even if the world yeah. is uh, five times bigger GDP we we're only going to be using a fraction of the resources that we've got available on this planet. Imagining scaling solar for instance so it's just powering half of the world I don't know what solar panels are made out of but there's just some flat resource constraint there's just not enough such and such in the world to to meet that. You'll be surprised by the answer glass Really? Yeah, yeah, the most sense. abundant material on earth. Um, and they are having problems. And in China in particular, the people raiding beaches, and beaches are the um, most available source of concentrated silicon. Mm. We will ha- have to deal with that problem. Um, there's other rarer um, metals um, that I'm not across too well. Um, but... We, we are looking at solutions. So silic, um, sorry, silver is one example. You use that for the conductant on the solar panel on the back that moves the, the electricity that's generated. Um, but you, they're looking at alternatives. And at some point, the amount of solar you're producing is going to impact the silver market. So mm. not a bad idea to invest in silver. <laughs> um, but I think we're pretty good for at least half the planet being... Um, yeah. generating uh, solar and wind. Maybe I'm just making this up, but presumably there is, you get this pattern quite often where you think you're running into this just like insurmountable resource constraint and then it turns out there's a sideways solution where you can just replace the old thing with a with some new tech. You're probably going to get to it at some point where we're going to talk about models and mm-hmm. how people have modelled this transition. Um, I'm a yeah. modeller myself and I know it's far easier to model problems and barriers mm-hmm. And we do do that. We put those in, but we don't put in human ingenuity. We don't put in all these solutions that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. And we do a very good job of it. And that's why experience curves are actually really quite powerful because they include those barriers being overcome by solutions through yeah, time yeah. Yeah. and yeah. the rate at which we're able to do that. I'm just trying to think of, so it's a, a graph of projected costs for solar over time versus actual costs and it's just like constantly underestimating the progress right presumably because it's just easier to model things given the like current constraints but it's not how the world works Uh, i don't i'm told there's no conspiracy going on but there is definitely a consistency (laughs) in their bias that if they it was purely random error they would be too optimistic a couple of times at least Mm -hmm. but they're always pessimistic on the costs of solar and wind and uh, Luca did a bit of work around the floor costs as well. So there's, 
in order to deal with these dynamics in the models, because the these these feedback dynamics are not don't work well in optimization models. Um, they're hard to deal with. You put in things like those floor costs in order to stop the system from just completely switching over to these technologies. Right. And those floor costs were broken through half of them already in the, that are in the models that are being used to inform policymakers. And we'll include like graphs and the write-ups for listeners who want to like actually see what we're talking about. Yeah, so I definitely want to talk about models and we'll do that like I think in two secs. One question I want to ask just before that though is this kind of like big picture idea of how we should be approaching different technologies. And we've been like talking to a couple of other people involved in like climate change research or kind of activism as well. Mm -hmm. One of the lessons that was like really emphasized was this importance of kind of diversifying options and really keeping every technology on the table. Climate change is such a big problem. We don't know which technologies will kind of be the ones that really win and which help. And it's important to just yeah, kind of diversify. And I definitely share that intuition and it seems really convincing, but then there is some tension here, right? With this kind of rights law or experience curves idea, where there are economies of scale, where sometimes you just really have to invest in one technology to really get it to pay off and to get it to be cheaper and to get it to improve. And, you know, I guess when people are making policy, finance and resources are somewhat limited. And sometimes you do just have to make a trade-off here and choose to invest more in one as opposed to diversifying in others. Um, yeah, and I'm just curious what your kind of take on all of this is. I know it's a huge question, but how do you kind of square those two different intuitions, both of which seem really convincing to me and I have no idea uh, where that kind of balance is? Uh, well, I haven't done this research, but it's Dan Farmer again and uh, another colleague, Rupert Way, um, and you've characterised it really well. You do have both those dynamics, um, but the more you invest early on in these winning technologies, mm. the more bang for your buck you get out of it. So there's these outsized benefits from particular investments. So you do want to, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah but you don't want to spread your money too thin. So you have, the, you have to find a sweet spot between those two dynamics. So both intuitions are right. You've just got to somehow find a solution <laughs> to yeah. find a middle ground. I guess that is the problem for, for policymakers is to know which one are the winners and which ones aren't. Yeah, and, and but that's the great thing about, once again, the experience curves. It's like I'm a salesman for the experience <laughs> curves, um, is that once you get enough information and us data they are actually amazingly consistent mm. through time uh, and it has been shown for a number of different technologies right across the the sphere the so uh, ethanol chemical productions um, genomics as i mentioned before yeah so um, and once you get enough experience with them you can actually pick which technologies are going to work. So you've just got you've got to get them to a certain point where you understand the right, dynamics. Yeah, yeah. But there's also, as I mentioned before, certain characteristics of some technologies that make them good candidates for good experience codes. Mm. As I mentioned, modularity and mm. and and that's one problem with one of the big alternatives that a lot of these models have, which is carbon capture and storage. So that's taking the flue gas out of the power station and and purifying the CO2 and sticking it underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big, massive piece of kit that you've got to add on to every power station. So you're not necessarily going to get economies of scale. They're pretty much built bespoke for every power station. Um, they're not modular. They're not small pieces of equipment. Um, and you've got to have mass appeal and mass production. Neither of those really apply to carbon capture and storage either. 
So that doesn't look like technology is going to come down much in cost. It will come down some yeah, from yeah. early phases because we'll learn how to do it and they are learning. Um, but it'll be quite slow, if at all. You've talked about potential guidelines for disclosing risks from climate change. Can you say something about what that means? Um, and if that's not enough, can you also explain what people mean by stranded assets and transition risks too? Following the global financial crisis in 2009, uh, there was a body set up called the Financial Stability Board, uh, which had some big heavy hitters on it, uh, like Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg and Mark Carney from the, the Bank of England, uh, former Bank of England. They have recently come out and said, well, there's a similar sort of storm brewing in climate risk. And that is that, that all the countries and companies around the world will be exposed to more and more risks from extreme weather events, um, you know, storm surges, sea level rise, um, and they are not being uh, accommodated in an evaluation of a stock's future earnings potential. And that, that determines their market price. Their market price is basically determined based on their future earnings potential, as you can imagine. And if you're paying all these costs from all these extreme weather events, then your market price should be lower uh, because you're not accommodating that material risk within your evaluation of their returns. Another source of that risk is the transition risk, which is the risk associated with us transitioning more quickly than people think we will. And these renewable trends suggest that that is likely to happen because in our modelling, we just take current trends and project them forward and most of the fossil fuel industry is gone in 2040. Um, so you can imagine there's all these assets out there that are on people's books that are supposedly earning lots of money and fossil fuel companies that are selling lots of oil and, and gas and they have those on their balance sheets that are yeah. not worth what they're saying they're worth, mm. $80 a barrel, which they're not. Just to clarify, so is the idea that the fossil fuel companies know about these risks, but they're, they're not internalising them and they kind of should be because these are like costs they're imposing on us? Or is it that they're actually just, Plain there are these risks and they're just like, yeah, <laughs> ignorant of them? No, I wouldn't say they're ignorant of them. I yeah. think uh, some of the early research on climate change actually came out of right, uh, right. some of the big oil companies. No, they're definitely not uh, ignorant of them. I imagine they're quite scared of them. Um, if they know what they're doing, they should be. Uh, and that's why they put so much effort into lobbying efforts to try and stop um, these transitions from happening. But it's going to be pretty hard for them to stop renewables now because um, mm. the technology is already getting to the point where um, it's going to have its own feedback dynamic and, and it's very little they can do to stop it. They don't, they, I can't imagine they would want you to know that they've got that risk in their market value. Um, Interestingly, I think that if anyone's ignorant, it is the financial markets that are ignorant or right. very optimistic about what the fossil fuel industry is able to do. So the idea is just that fossil fuel like stock prices are kind of surprisingly high if you really take the risk seriously. So Caltech, oh not Caltech, sorry, Shell just recently were told, did I mention this already? Yeah, but say yeah. it again. Say so again. Shell yeah. was told by the Dutch cause that they have to reduce their emissions by 30% by 2030, 40% by yeah. 2030. That's a massive in reduction in the sale of oil from this company. So that their market value is based on how much of that oil they sell into the future. And 
in the next 10 years they're going to reduce that drastically, their stock price has not fallen since that court ruling. What's going on there? Uh, I don't know, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, either the, the, I mean, the ruling has, my colleagues tell me the ruling has some components to it uh, that are a bit dodgy, so I imagine yeah. they're going to appeal. And so what is the stock market doing? Are they thinking that that appeal is going to work and that it's never going to happen to another uh, fossil fuel company? Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. Nice. I, I'm surprised. Well, we've got two pieces of investment advice. <laughs> Buy silver and short shell. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> the silver one might not come for another 10 years, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get it lower. <laughs> No, awesome. Um, let's move on a little bit then. So we've talked a lot about uh, renewables and we've talked a lot about the financial risk that companies are facing. But there's also this other element to it, which is this more kind of policy and like research oriented, like modeling of what these transitions are actually going to be. So before we get into like stuck into some of the details, can you give us like a brief overview of what climate change modeling looks like? And in particular, what these integrated assessment models are that we always hear about? I'm surprised if everyone always hears about them. <laughs> I hear about them too much. Um, they're the models that were built around the world by various uh, scientific organisations to provide decision makers, uh, the IPCC, uh, the Internet, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, with advice around climate risks and also climate mitigation pathways, so how to deal with those climate risks. They have many components, and that's why they're called integrated assessment models. They have uh, an earth system, so they look at the climate system. They also look at the economic system, and they have energy system models. They also have land use models because land use change impacts on emissions. And they couple them all together and run various scenarios into the future of, of what the population is going to do, what GDP is going to do, uh, how behaviour might change. All these things they're going to try and put into the model to see how that might impact on our emissions mm. uh, and also what policies might be most effective in reducing those emissions and how much might it cost to do that. The main advice that they generally give is um, they're used to provide a, a a level of understanding around the uncertainty of the challenge ahead and they do a reasonable job of, of providing yeah. that information so you get this huge fan of possible futures um, of what emissions could do depending on all these different factors and you can use them to look at what factors are most important in terms of their impact on those emissions and so forth um, what some of the main ones are used for also is, is the costs of these mitigation pathways which we would argue they're not doing a particularly good job of um, because of the way they're characterising some of these uh, technologies. Can you talk a bit about like why that isn't? In particular, I know the DICE model has become like a bit more kind of prominent for some of the things that is kind of overseen. Can you talk about like why that is? So there's, there's two different types of model, uh, innovative system models, unfortunately, to make things confusing. There's more somewhat simpler models that are used to determine the costs of climate change. So yeah. these models have the um, a replica of a climate system and that climate system will impact on the economy and reduce the economic growth of the economy. And so you've got that feedback between the economic damages yeah. and economic growth. 
Uh, Dice is an example of one of those. Um, Nord, Bill Nordhaus got the um, Nobel Economics Memorial Prize recently, um, and he's the author of that Dice model. Um, and it has received uh, some um, criticism, and quite rightly in a way, because one of the conclusions out of that original DICE model was that three and a half degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels is some sort of optimum. Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's too many physical scientists out there, you know, atmospheric physicists and climate scientists, that would agree with that. 3.5 degrees is actually catastrophic, would be what they would say. Um, so... For a model to tell you that some sort of optimal level is is, is problematic. Uh, as I said, there's another lot of models, which are the bigger integrated assessment models that are used to uh, map out these pathways. They don't actually have that feedback dynamic where climate damages impact on the, the, the economy. Uh, so they have scenarios that go up to you know, six degrees um, with the economy growing um, at, you know, five times of what it is now yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, without any feedback dynamic whatsoever. So that, that was considered the business as usual scenario. Now it's considered the worst case scenario. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can, can you explain a little bit maybe about like what that even means about like optimal warning? Like what are the kind of costs and benefits that the DICE model or other models would be weighing up here? Uh, so it'd be basically that the, the, the trade-off will suppose a trade-off between the environmental benefits of reducing climate change, mm. um, so reducing the amount of extreme weather events and the impact that spending money on doing that will have on the economy, so reducing economic growth. Yeah, and yeah. the DICE model was designed to kind of show a point that um, if we grow our economy, we're going to have more money to be able to spend on these things. So mm. it's always better to be richer to, when you have to spend money. Um, and so you get a benefit out of growing the economy. And so they looked at the marginal costs and where they went wrong really is, is the economic damages function, arguably. And just tying this in then to what we were talking about before, is there like any role that this like rapid decline in renewable prices and stuff has with these models and how they're kind of calculating costs and benefits? We would argue you could get these mm. um, experience curve, at least the outputs of experience curve model into these um, uh, integrated assessment models. And I would really like to see that happen yeah, because yeah. I'm pretty sure they would come up with radically different answers mm. um, to what they've got. So there's basically this really exciting part of the solution space that these models are not investigating. And part of the reason, as I said, is that feedback dynamics, they, they're difficult to model in an optimization model, particularly one of these big, mm. you know, they're beasts. Like I've managed big models and they are a lot of work and there's no one person that actually knows how the whole thing works. So there's whole teams behind it. And if you need to change anything, that's a huge undertaking. So to do, people have attempted to try and incorporate experience curves in and surely enough, uh, if they put in some of these costs in for renewables, they find that they dominate and they, they lead to at least a, as cheap a world as any other solution. So, um, it, but it just hasn't been given as much airtime as it needs to. Yeah, I think you've answered the question I was about to ask, which is given even given how complicated these models are, Presumably you have some impression of the kind of direction of change you would get if you plugged in the experience curves 
into the models and presumably that direction is renewables turn out to look a lot better than they they look currently yeah so the uh, international energy agency actually has um taken their updated um yet still posit- pessimistic uh cost yeah. forecasts uh, because the costs are so low now even though they haven't changed the slope slope of their function they have started at a, a very low level now mm-hmm that it is um, globally starting to be meet price parity with mm. fossil fuels. So they are now, they have a new scenario that looks a lot better, a lot less, a uh, lot more renewable, something like 70 odd percent of the world's uh, energy is uh, provided by renewables in 2050 in that model, and they've never had anything like that before. So yes, you would definitely get that result if you put in those experience curves. And when we're talking about these integrated assessment models, presumably they have some kind of weighting of the likelihood of different outcomes. And at the tails, there are surprisingly good outcomes, which are not really worth worrying about. But also at the other end, there are, you know, especially bad outcomes. And then there's also presumably just some uncertainty about the model itself, which you've talked about. Maybe it's missing something fairly crucial, especially on the climate modeling side. Um, how do the models kind of think about that and how are those uncertainties and the tail risks, how are they like communicated from the kind of modeling to policymakers, for instance? Uh, well, I'll talk about the financial um, markets soon, uh, first because much to their chagrin, these models don't actually provide any information about probability. And if you do oh. want to know what climate risks you're facing, you need to know, you know, risk is uh, likelihood times consequence. They can give you an idea of the consequence, but they can't give you an idea of the likelihood. And part of the problem is- That seems surprising to me. There's like no indication of, this is like the, this is kind of the default expectation. This is a kind of- Uh, So you could talk to someone like me and I could give you an opinion um, and I'll be happy to do that. But um, if you talk to the atmospheric physicists like Professor Miles Allen, he'll tell you that those climate models have no probability associated with them. They're just projections into the future of certain scenarios. And they've put scenarios behind them that you can say you believe one more than the other. Mm. Um, so there's a, a scenario called the rivalry scenario where countries kind of go it alone and they don't cooperate on climate change and so it costs more to um, mitigate climate change in that scenario. There's a sustainability one where people cooperate more, people have less babies, people um, uh, change their behaviour to reduce the meat they eat. But who can put probabilities on? Sorry, okay, I think I'm misunderstanding. So there are different things you can put probabilities on, right? One is just given some, some kind of setup where you have a certain amount of emissions and so on, what's the likely, just the kind of, the climate modelling, how does this play out over the next half century? Presumably you have some, like, probability weighting where it's like, here are the tails, here's how certain we are. And then you have the question of, like, okay, which setups are actually most likely? Like, what, what are people going to be doing? So some people have taken the fan of all these possible futures and put them into a distribution and said, well, this is our distribution of possible outcomes. Yeah. But there's no, not necessarily any scientific credibility to doing that. When you get to the mitigation scenarios where you're actually having a global carbon tax, you can have an opinion on how likely it is to get a carbon tax up right. $100. So you might want to put a probability to that. 
So when I was talking about the financial institutes, I was saying, well, so what do they do? The ones that are trying to take on climate risk and put it into their analysis, what do they do? Well, they pick a scenario. They, they just choose one. They choose one they feel is, is, is a likely scenario and they, they choose a counterfactual. Um, so generally they, they choose that worst case scenario for their understanding of what the physical risk is. And then they take one of the IEA's beyond two degree scenarios and say, that, well, that's your transition risk. But that's actually quite a surprising um, amount of difference between those two scenarios. I mean, fair enough. It's quite a lot to ask to make calls in the model about how likely the scenarios are. It's so, a bloody, so. No, it's a very good question because I was actually surprised to find the answer to that is what we do have with the modelling that we're doing in INED is probabilistic cost forecasts. And that's something that's new and, okay. and, up and different. And you do have a certain probability associated with the costs of these technologies and how they might change through time. And you could argue that they give you some indication of how trends might play out. And mm. so that makes the worst case scenario seem less likely given that our modeling just used current trends and projects them forward. Yeah. And that ends up with a decarbonized world and electricity a lot cheaper. Mm. And you can imagine once that dynamic starts rolling on, that seems like a more likely scenario. But, but that's as close as you can get, possibly, and it's, it's my opinion, yeah. ultimately. I guess yeah. there's a very vague point to make here about complex systems is that you don't have like nice smooth distributions over likely outcomes, right? You have you, yeah, you can, get, you can get some very bizarre-looking distributions out of a complex system. The other problem is that because the system is changing, um, we, don't, we can't collect enough data to know actually right. what system we're in. Um, so you would need about 100 years of data to understand what the climate system right. looks like now. Because it's changed in the last 100 years, we'd have to have stabilised temperatures, then have 100 years of history to know what oh, we're dealing with now. We're only dealing with models now of what we think it is based on what it was before that we do actually have history on. Yeah. So it's Sounds kind of scary like when you think about yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't actually know what we're doing to this system. So there's a question I want to ask, but before I ask that, I just want to like parrot a bit what you two have been discussing just to make sure I kind of understand what's kind of going on here. So when somebody asks, what is the likelihood that we'll meet the two degrees Paris target? That is obviously like a really, really hard question to ask because that really depends on what governments do, how the economy will grow, how population develops, and then all like the climate kind of science stuff as well. And that is just too much to ask for a model to do at the moment. So what essentially happens is that there is some pathway that you kind of choose as like a given scenario. So you determine how much GDP will grow, or you determine how much population grows, you make some baseline assumptions. And then based on those assumptions and those like government policies, you can then say what the likelihood is of you reaching a certain degree, two degree warming, three degree warming, and so on. But that still of in itself assumes a certain government response or a certain world. And we don't really know what world we're heading to. Yeah, so it's based purely on those assumptions. And that's why they came up with these different, they're called shared socioeconomic pathways. There's five of the main shared socioeconomic pathways that the IPCC developed. And they've got very different narratives to them. As I said, there's a rivalrous one. There's a highway to hell, I call it. One yeah. The worst case scenario. And then there's the sustainability scenario. And, they they are all hypothetical scenarios, but 
they have a narrative to them that you can maybe consider one more likely to the other because you believe the narrative behind those. Yeah, yeah. And so you can then say, well, in that world, what's the likelihood of getting to a certain warming degrees and what mm. do we have to do? But that's, that's based on all your assumptions. Yeah, so there's kind of like two questions we ask at the end of every interview. Um, the first one is, what is a significant thing you've recently changed your mind about and why? I'll say that this research we're doing, uh, I, jo I joined this research program because it's the first time I've actually um, felt optimistic about uh, mm. chances of stopping climate change. Um, I watched a presentation of um, Cameron Hepburn and, and Dane Farmer uh, about three years ago give a presentation of no results, just the ambition of the research program. And it was around these positive feedback dynamics and sensitive intervention points. And it was so optimistic that I signed up and that, that's why I'm, I'm doing this job I am at the moment. And so I have changed drastically how optimistic I am about our chances of, of stopping climate change but possibly to a fault. Yeah, now I'm, I, I need to listen to a few more naysayers and, and be a bit more cautious about you know, some of those hard to abate sectors uh, that we're probably going to need to do some costly things like carbon capture and storage for. I want to sneak in like a penultimate question, which is, I feel like at the start of the interview, you mentioned something about sharks. And I just want to, I just want to hear what that involved. <laughs> it, was a, it was an awesome experience. Uh, um, we were part of, I've worked at, as a research scientist for fisheries. I was a modeler, so I didn't belong on. They were going out so many times in order to try and understand the, the dynamics of the shark population. And... You know, catching these big three-metre bull sharks uh, that were swimming around Sydney Harbour, bringing them up, cutting them open, putting a little pinger in them, sewing them back up and letting them go. And so I would volunteer for days when people wouldn't go, uh, the real scientists doing these practical exercises. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got to bring up some sharks out of the deep, look into their eyes, and it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. Like, that's pure wildness when you look in the eye of a shark. The, the, the closest thing I've seen to it was Andre Agassi as a tennis player. He absolutely hated tennis, apparently. It's a fantastic book if you, you get a chance. Um, but there's this look of determination and wild, you know, determination in his eyes that reminded me of the, the sharks. Yeah, or the places being a model, I guess. You. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. Yeah, so we have one last question, which we ask everyone, which is what three books or articles, films, whatever, would you recommend to anyone who's listened to this and interested in finding out more? One of the main um, problems we have, I think, is in education around complex systems. It's, it's not com necessarily complex. It's just that it's uh, learning how to understand complexity rather than this being a complex topic. And I think everyone would be... Uh, fascinated to learn more about it. And there's a fantastic book by one of the, the founders of this kind of branch of research called Danello Meadows, an American woman uh, that wrote a fantastic introduction called Thinking in Systems that I thoroughly recommend uh, your listeners um, read. It's only a short book and, and really well written uh, by one of the experts in the field. Um, I would recommend the report that I co-authored <laughs> with Luca. 
um, which you, the listeners, can go to um, energychallenge.info to, to uh, read about. Um, there's also a great little video on there that kind of um, gives an overview of the ambition and the, the optimism of the, the scenarios. Um, there's also a video of Dane Farmer and myself presenting the research if you want to get into uh, seeing the research presented by the, the people that wrote about it. And reading anything by Dan Farmer if you're into scientific literature, um, he's an amazing uh, guy, so um, I thoroughly recommend that. Um, so that, I don't watch my, I don't have time to watch anything other, the, the depressing thing is that <laughs> the last great book I read was probably Lord of the Rings, so <laughs> um, I'm just reading manuscripts and articles and, and I'm not going to, Oh, I got a great one, a YouTube video uh, for my son. This made me realise why YouTube is such an amazing thing. I'd never really got it so much before. He loves dumpster trucks, like he loves it. And right. someone yeah, yeah. went to the trouble of putting together, you know, a, a montage of dumpster <laughs> trucks that are different sizes and <laughs> different arm actions of how they pick up the bins, and it's fascinating to watch. <laughs> that would never have got to me. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. The YouTube did, if YouTube didn't exist. So there you go. You need to send us a link. <laughs> best, of, best of dump trucks. Dumpsters, yeah. Very last question. Uh, just a chance for you to plug your own work uh, and everything. Where can people find you online and see what you're kind of up to? Uh, yeah, so that website I plugged before, uh, energychallenge.info, has that latest report, which is around a lot of this stuff that we're working on. Um, or you could go to the... Oxford uh, INET website, inet.ox.ac.uk, and um, I'm Matthew Ives, and you can plug my name in um, and, uh, yeah, find me on that. Awesome. Matthew Ives, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. That was wonderful. I enjoyed it. That was Matt Ives on solar power and energy systems modelling. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Matt. There, you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout the interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like our two previous interviews. That's number 30 with Isabel Bumaker on nuclear energy, and number 31 with Armand Cohen from the Clean Air Task Force. We'd be really grateful if you could leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And if you have constructive feedback, there's also a link on the website, or you can get in touch with us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.